Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi everyone, it's Annika. Thank you for joining me for this week's Speak Up Conversation and thank you to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation whose lands I am recording on today. I engage in counselling type practices every day in my work. For example, I chat to teachers about how to accommodate the needs of their students. I chat to parents about how to better communicate with their child. I chat to our grade one speechy in supervision. I chat to ambivalent secondary school students about all sorts of things, really. Upon reflection, no one has ever really trained me to do this. I recall doing a subject called interpersonal processes at uni many moons ago, but I don't think this was really that revolutionary to my work. So my counselling skills have really all been learnt on the job. Today, I'm super pleased to be chatting to a speech pathologist who has embarked on a journey to improve their clinical counselling skills by becoming qualified in an approach called motivational interviewing. Jackie Raymond is a speech pathologist working in community adult neurological rehabilitation. She is principal speech pathologist at Communicate for Life, a private practice in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne. In late 2022, Jackie travelled to Chicago to undertake further training in motivational interviewing, and she is now passionate to share her knowledge about having effective, compassionate conversations with us, her speech pathology colleagues. She's also a wonderful human who I first met many years ago as a co-member of the Vic Branch Professional Education Committee, so I am super excited to be crossing paths with her again today. Hello and welcome, Jackie. Hello, Annika. Thank you so much. And um, what a lovely warm welcome. And may I also just acknowledge um, that we're meeting where I am on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And actually, I'm on Mount Corran Warrable, actually, is the traditional name for where I'm on. And it's a beautiful spot. So if we get interrupted by kookaburras, <laughs> uh, we welcome them into the conversation. Absolutely. So lovely to be crossing paths with you again, Jackie, after all this time. And I'm so excited to be chatting through this topic with you. But before we chat about the actual nuts and bolts of motivational interviewing, I would just love you to tell us about your journey into motivational interviewing and how you even initially became interested in the area. Oh, thanks, Annika. That's a lovely question. And um, I might have to share a bit of a story, really, because it Please is a bit of a, Yeah, <laughs> great. Well, um, uh, I sometimes use the phrase it was a breach birth because I feel like I came into it a little bit backwards. And um, whereas it's actually a natural birth to a natural fit for me. Um, so, I guess um, one of the things to say is that I'm a member now of MINT, but not necessarily certified. We, they don't do um, certification like that, but that's where I've ended up for the moment, but still on a really big learning journey, which is lovely fun. But I think my actual introduction begins uh, right when I began speech pathology, I think, and was working, interestingly, in palliative care or one of my final placements before I graduated. And so I actually, on graduation and getting that job, sought some external supervision really early on in my career because I couldn't actually access what I needed. And so it sparked a line of curiosity that's really been lifelong. And 
I hadn't discovered motivational interviewing in that actual form, you know, that actual name of it, but was doing lots that's got a lot in common with it um, and came about to it backwards because I'd been introduced to it, I think, under more managerial frameworks and systems change that were happening in institutions that actually wasn't motivational interviewing at all. So that's the backwards breach birth part where <laughs> I think it wasn't what I thought it was. I made a mistake. And so um, I actually really embraced it under pandemic conditions. So if I jump fast forward mm-hmm. in the story, um, as a therapist, I think finding gold really in some dark places when we've been through almost coming up to three years now um, mm-hmm. and working under some really hard conditions. And I think I followed a line of curiosity that sort of landed me in Chicago in a pandemic, and I never would have predicted that. (laughs) But motivational interviewing, um, one of my mentors recommended it, so a shout-out to Katie Kirby, who I was so grateful for. Many other people suggested along the way, but I was really considering a workshop and was in two minds, how ironic, a bit ambivalent about going, and... Katie, my colleague, sent me a random email saying, look, Jackie, give this a go. It's one of the few things where the presenters actually model it. (laughs) They live the technique. And that was enough to help me get across the line. And so David Manchester uh, presented a workshop and an amazing, inspiring individual who we sadly lost in September last year. And um, David inspired me and it would have been lovely to be able to tell him in person if he were here. He went well before his time and he really sparked off something that I look forward to. Hopefully one day he'll know the light that he lit for me. And yeah, so that's kind of how I came to it. And Test it like working in real life. So I work in the wilds, in the community with real people as a real therapist. And I've found it really, uh, it's been a very helpful framework and way of working for me, Mm, for my half. So, yeah, is that too long a story? I don't know. Oh, that's amazing, Jackie. No, (laughs) thank you. It sounds like it's just been this career long process of getting to this point that you're so thrilled to now be at, which is amazing. Oh, that's a beautiful reflection and I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention in there um, I sought out really specific supervision during the pandemic in the second year of the pandemic, which is in Melbourne, to give some context. We did lots of really hard work for our community, like for the whole nation really. We really worked hard together to support each other and to keep everybody well. So um, in Melbourne, for those that are listening and didn't know, we had really long lockdowns that we needed to do and so I used that opportunity and was really lucky to connect with Helen Mentha, who's also a mentor, motivational um, network of uh, trainers um, and an international trainer herself. And I was able to get some one-on-one supervision and that was transformative. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I really didn't do this journey and I'm not doing this journey on my own. In fact, I can't. So it's lovely to join a community and mm-hmm. would, yeah, Helen really 
helped transform my practice for me. And so it's lovely to engage with learning, particularly in what felt like a tremendous drought in the profession, in the, not the profession, sorry, that was a slip there. I meant in the pandemic, in that isolating time. Yeah. Mm, Absolutely. It is good to hear stories like that, that turned that incredibly long, stressful lockdown that we did all face in Melbourne into something positive, which is great to hear. So what actually is motivational interviewing, Jackie, and how is it different to what speech pathologists might currently do when we're chatting to clients or families or other people in our work? Oh, it's a terrific question, and I wonder that one myself too, Annika. Um, Well, if only, yeah, he's, we'll try and do it in a nutshell. So my <laughs> simple, plain English, if I'm allowed to give myself permission and just not put the pressure to be an expert, but just to be a therapist as I am and to talk in plain English, uh, motivational interviewing, it does come from the School of Psychology. So that's its groundings. Um, and we can talk more about that in a bit. And it sort of fits originally with a counselling style of things. But what it really is, is conversations about change. It's a way of having helpful conversations about change, making change, where the other person is able to draw forth really their own reasons for change and their own strengths around that. So it's a lovely, empowering, compassionate way of having effective conversations Mm. about change. And I think the thing that really hooked me in was the simplest thing, which was what is therapy other than behaviour change? Mm. And so I was really intrigued and wanted to follow that line of curiosity. Absolutely. And obviously, as speech pathologists, we, you know, our bread and butter is working with people with a communication impairment. Is motivational interviewing a technique we can use with our clients with a communication impairment? Oh, thank you. You, That was the second part of your question and I missed it. Um, So yes, in short is absolutely yes. And it's a really helpful way of being able to have conversations with pretty much anyone uh, about making changes. And it's helpful for our side of the conversation. I think speech pathologists will find it incredibly familiar for that people, many people will be familiar with this already, but for those of us that are new to it, um, motivational interviewing, which, you know, that's the terminology given to it, but the elements of it and the way of the approach of it is at at first and foremost, quite recognisable and it feels tremendously familiar because it is part, it's a communication, um, it's part of a fundamental element of human communication. So, yes, speech pathologists are going to find it very familiar. So, Jackie, is this um, a technique that can be used across different clinical areas in speech pathology, like paediatrics versus adults and other sort of clinical areas we might find ourselves in? Yeah, it's a great question, Annika, and one I wondered myself, and yes is the short answer. Yeah, the, there's so much research showing that therapists can work and other people can work in this way. It's a how. It's a how we do things. And so it's a clinical competence that therapists take with them 
It's how we engage with clients. So yes, you can work this way in many different settings with many different people because it's our half of the conversation and that's something we can manage. Awesome. And so did you find then when you started applying this approach that it was dramatically different to what you were doing already? It's a subtle shift, but a big shift. shift. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a tremendous relief in some ways. And actually a lot of the research and information from around the world is many people who start engaging in this way and and making changes in our own communication. It's quite a relief on the helper side of the picture. You know, if we're the professional helper, to use a term really, but when you're the therapist or the person who's uh, been approached to help really in a Mm. situation, there is quite a bit of pressure to feel like you need to fix it and Mm. to have a solution and that can be quite a burden. Um, And so this has been really quite fun and quite liberating to approach it in a different way. It was a natural fit for me in many ways but it also helped give me clarity around, ah, these are some really essential elements that uh, I could lean more into and it also let me let go of some stuff that actually wasn't particularly helpful um, for myself and particularly for clients. I could really let go of some stuff and I'm like, oh, that was a relief. Because so it's what sort of work. They, yeah, what sort of things are they, Jackie? What, what could you let go of? Is that a tricky question to answer? Oh, it's a great question. I think um, giving myself really more time to be able to actually listen Mm-hmm. To lean into listening more was a really good thing and uh, there's really learnable and teachable ways to do that. And I thought I was doing it pretty well, you know, as a speech pathologist, you think you're doing it. And I can actually remember, uh, you, know, if, you know, it was great hearing you mention that course that we did in our undergraduate years. Um, <laughs> and I can remember, you know, 25 years ago with my very first clients and being referred, you know, um, a mother and a son, I mean, they're the roles that you'd call them, but a mum and her son who was in his mid-20s and had a progressive neurological disease that was really rapidly taking this young man's life. And there's this mum and I'm supposed to do my job as a speech pathologist and she was tremendously stuck. She was stuck. Mm. And how could you not be in that situation, really? And I can remember uh, listening and doing my very best listening, following some stuff out of books and research, and it didn't quite go anywhere. It was effective, but it wasn't the whole picture. And so that's where when I think back, when you're asking me, you know, what is it that you would do differently? You know, listening without a particular direction or focus can sometimes not go anywhere. It turns into following and following down a whole lot of tributaries that are already confusing for people, you know, in the chaos that they're in in these dire situations. Situations or, or or even good situations where there's just too many choices. So that's the parts that I've found has helped give me some clarity. Is, is that what you were meaning? Mm, absolutely. So, I mean, you've already touched on some of the benefits to speech pathologists. And as I'm listening to you, it sounds like um, as a therapist now or a clinician yourself, you're feeling happier in your role as a clinician using this technique. So obviously it has some benefits for your well-being as a clinician. What other benefits do you see um, that this technique brings to speech pathologists? Oh, that's 
great. Yeah, it, it's a lovely observation that I am happier, which I feel, you know, it's a big thing in that in the tired phase of this pandemic. And I think you're right. It brought a real curiosity and a freshness to conversations. And after this many years, I've done lots of different things in my career in speech pathology and zigzagged around following different interests, as lots of us do. And um, it's surprisingly brought a fresh curiosity and it's really helped me connect in some fresh ways with myself, give myself permission to be able to practice empathy um, in a helpful way for both myself and the client. You know, it can be overwhelming when we're all of us, are, you know, the clients, families, people drowning in um labels of disorders and disabilities and all the disses that can come mm. about. It's really lovely to find the strengths. So that's been fun. It's helped me um, yeah, build confidence, I think, being able to have really navigate some really tight spaces and some, you know, conversations across what sometimes feel like Grand Canyons, you know, when mm. people are on really different sides or coming at things from really different ways. So it's a lovely way of building hope, being able to connect with hope, not uh, not enforcing that on anyone, but finding it together in a partnership and in a therapeutic relationship. So the active ingredients of therapy, really. Amazing. Is that too abstract? I might be going to. No, it's, I'm so, I'm really <laughs> so, enjoying you describing it. It's fantastic. Like um, it's deceptively simple, but sometimes the really important things in life, are, the simple things are actually quite challenging to do. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I know you mentioned earlier in the episode that we will delve a little bit into this psychological side of motivational interviewing. And I'm wondering if we can sort of start that little conversation by, um, if I could start that by asking you, what actually is the history of motivational interviewing? Is it a technique that's been around for a long time? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I'll try and summarise. I think um, there's, it came around in the 80s and some of the publishing founders is William Miller or Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick and to agree also Theresa Moyers has done some great work as well. So Bill Miller is and Stephen Rolnick are really the published founders and have been, Bill has is an emeritus professor and his particular interest is in this area. He founded it. And um, he will always acknowledge all the multiple partners that he's worked with. And it's from the 1980s, and that kind of reflects also the name where motivational interviewing came from, um, which it, they're really empowering conversations and compassionate conversations about change. And so Bill is a psychologist and so is uh, Steve Rolnick, but Bill was working, um, the origins of it are really in drug and alcohol counselling and in addictions and in the context of the 1980s. And its context really matters, I think, in life, but also in healthcare and approaches. And he really has done some not just Bill, but the research coming out repeatedly is really quite strong that the ther what therapists do and how we talk about things really can have great positive effects on people's ability to change and even to be able to, for a person to change themselves. So that's where it, it came from, is out of drug and alcohol counselling. And there's some, uh, it's helpful because they're quite measurable things and quite observable things and um, quite big changes, really. 
Yeah. And so I'm just wondering too, it sounds like a technique that could be used in, I mean, we're talking about it in a speech pathology context here, Jackie, but it's a technique that's been in, used in other contexts too, I can imagine. Am I right in saying that? You are, Annika, and that's really talking about its origins. But today, but there really are, um, there's more than 200 clinical controlled trials per year. Like that's an astounding number to put out per year. And so soon motivational interviewing, I think when at the conference when I was at it, there will soon be beyond 2,000 controlled trials in total around MI, which is a lot. And wow, that's huge, Jackie. It is big, which is reassuring. I don't need to do that. No. <laughs> but also, you know, even looking at it from a Google Scholar, um, Bill Miller in his 2022 plenary was talking about if you follow Google Scholar, there's around 11,000 Google Scholar article citations every year mentioning MI. So there's a lot and a lot of a growing body of evidence talking about it. And I guess if you talk about different disciplines, this is how it would connect in with speech pathology. It's almost a question of, well, why not? Like mm. talking with people and seeing the evidence too, It's uh, it's been implemented and applied and researched in really different fields like forensics mm -hmm. and corrective services like prisons through to dentistry, to through to dietetics, through to sports coaching, through to maternal child health. I mean, the list goes on with social work approaches. Uh, there's education and teaching. So there's a really broad and growing body of evidence. And, yeah, it's, it's something that can be flexibly adapted mm. to different contexts. It's and not a panacea, I will certainly say that. Yeah. But yeah, and has there been any papers then specific to speech pathology there have that you're been, aware of? Yeah, that's sorry, I didn't mean to jump in on you then. Yeah, there have been a few, um, and not a, it's a growing body of evidence, and some of the ones that are referenced, I think it this might actually speak more to the fact of what we already know is that people with communication disorders are often excluded from research. So um, there is there is a growing body of evidence in that and one of the ones that I think about that I actually participated in uh, for the research was the ASK aphasia trial. So it was particularly looking at, you know, it addressed that. Um, so, yes, there are and also sadly, no, there aren't in as many as I would have expected but I think that really does speak to the fact around the challenges of doing research and controlled trials but I know more are coming so mm, mm, that's so interesting and I can imagine is this an approach that psychologists would use fairly routinely in their work some do some don't yeah ah. <laughs> yeah so not it's not for everyone it best suits that it best suits people who want to use it yeah, rather than being forced to. Uh, so, and it is, you can learn it. It's motivational interviewing is very much learnable um, mm. and quite inclusive that way. Now, I know that it's a bit beyond the scope of our podcast episode today, Jackie, to expect you to train us in how to use this technique. <laughs> and obviously, I know you'll be giving us some information about where we can go if we want some further information about that at the end. But what are some of the broad steps or some of the broad strategies that you use within this technique? 
Oh, thanks, Annika. And I hope I'm not sounding too passionate, but yeah, I, and I, <laughs> I no, love the passion. That's right. Because <laughs> there are many things I enjoy in life, and motivational interviewing is one of them, you know. And it's, um, but I've found it that I think the thing that's interesting is often we look at technical aspects or disorders or diseases, or we come at things through different lenses and paradigms when actually. The therapeutic relationship itself and how we conduct our half as therapists is sometimes uh, forgotten or excluded um, in, you know, this desire to control for things in, in studies when actually it's a really active ingredient. We all know that just inherently from having enjoyable conversations. You know, mm. there's it's a human thing. So, yeah, motivational interviewing really has sort of there's two parts to it and there are there's many more parts than that but I think of it as in two parts and it's taught that way where the spirit or the attitude of the therapist and the spirit of motivational interviewing is really important like it's an active ingredient in it and that's things like being able to work in a partnership with clients and by clients I mean that's anyone we're working with really as you said so beautifully, it's parents, teachers, loved ones, support workers, other professionals. It's, um, but particularly when we think of it in a therapy relationship, it's the client themselves mm. and the people that they wish to involve and engage with or not sometimes. So working in partnership, also that spirit of acceptance, and this speaks to its roots really in it has deep roots in Rogerian Um, existential humanist theory and even Viktor Frankl some of our listeners will might have read that beautiful work man's search for meaning that book Um, and it's an amazing read one of the reads in a lifetime I think Um, and so motivational interviewing absolutely has deep connections to that so and that's around that acceptance that unconditional acceptance Mm. of each other and ourselves as we are and as we come and compassion um where we work with a person, not necessarily on them or for them, but mm. we're working with a person and in their interests, mm. you know, not necessarily putting the my drivers first. Mm. Uh, it's really about them. And also the other part of spirit is around empowerment. So it's working in a way that really empowers the other person, which nicely empowers kind of both of us really. And then, so that's that spirit, mm. you know, the spirit that of... It sounds to me that it's coming, some of that comes from your attitude, maybe your nonverbal communication when you're communicating with that person and some of the language you use with them. Am I right in saying that? That's, you're absolutely right. And that's where it's a good fit for speech pathologists, yeah, isn't for it, sure. really? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And what are some of the other components, Jackie? Well, there's, they, they talk about two, MI talks about four processes or sort of tasks or elements really, which is around engaging with a person, which isn't just five minutes of rapport. It's different. It's actually, we do, it's more than that. It's That's where you don't chuck out stuff. <laughs> it's not like we abandon all the good things we already know and do. It's drawing all those best things together and motivational interviewing can really add something to your practice. So that is that is something I, I think that is different where we don't have to um, throw out good things. You build on it. Mm. Um, so engaging is really 
it continues the whole time. It's that's the therapeutic relationship, or sometimes the therapeutic alliance, or it's a way of being with people, and that that's a flexible thing. Mm. Um, and there's another process is around focusing what you choose to focus. You know, particular ways of being able to choose a focus for therapy because there's lots that we could all work on, and you can't actually work on everything all at once as much as we want to. And and another part is a, particularly around being able to evoke change talk. So so there, there's parts that are really measurable and I think as speech pathologists we're really familiar with language samples and coding. There's a real linguistics element. In fact, um, Bill engaged, they did engage a linguist originally in designing this. They really analysed speech transcripts and what was actually going on in therapy sessions. You know, why were some therapists and far having far greater changes and why were other therapists not getting much change? And actually some therapists in their studies, unfortunately and alarmingly, clients got worse. So therapy's wow. not always neutral which yeah. we kind of know that ourselves, don't we? Yeah, definitely. It, so I guess there's those four elements with being able to engage and focus and evoke particular types of change talk or call forth from people their own reasons for change and being able to get in touch with that and then planning, being able to form a real workable plan of how to go about doing the the changes and then the actual doing it. So, I know that you've mentioned to me before our chat today about um, practice and how important it is to practice this technique and get feedback, um, which we don't, you know, I think back again, even in interpersonal processes, I can't necessarily remember practicing and having someone watch me and give me feedback. Can you talk through that a little bit? Because I think you've mentioned that that was a really big um, factor in how you've improved your skills. Oh, it's such a good point, Annika. You're right. It's a challenge, isn't it? After we graduate, and I think, it, uh, yeah, after we graduate, we go off and practice and we don't always or sometimes rarely have anyone be able to, you know, see what we're doing other than clients themselves. So our clients and families are a huge source of giving us feedback. You know, that's a really invaluable thing. And that's what MI has been able to help attune my eyes and ears to listen out for certain things that are, are really helpful markers of change or not change. You know, you can change in either direction. And I, I think we know um, the feeling of resistance or discord is really what you call it. You know, when suddenly it's like two notes, you know, you were playing a great tune together and things were harmonious and all of a sudden all the minor keys come out and everything just feels like this is crunching and grinding and just not fun, you know, pushing and pulling that can go on. And so that's having feedback and learning some techniques around that. I think you know, psychology is challenged by that because often it's too, you know, it's in a confidential space. So that's one of the wonderful things that um, I've really benefited from hearing and reading the research, but hearing Bill talk about it too, which is how can we expect ourselves as therapists to learn and build on our competencies if we never get feedback mm-hmm. and if we never know how we're doing and what to change? It's a bit like playing tennis in the dark and never getting the ball returned or, wonder, you know, mm. it's um, like it's any funny sport. though, as speeches, we feel a bit uncomfortable with that sometimes, I would say. Oh, I think you're <laughs> right. Yeah. It's part of that pressure that we feel from society and ourselves mm. to have to get it right all the time. 
And yeah. I think and that's it's okay not to, and it's okay you grow, don't you, from those experiences of having feedback, and that's a good thing. But I do think as a profession generally we are quite sensitive to some of that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think you're right, Annika, and I think our sensitivities can make us good at what we do I'd like to think that that we're sensitive to our fellow humans Mm. and to communication and you're right it is painful I definitely had to go through some learning and you know be brave myself be courageous I must say though it's tremendously helpful to get gentle and supportive feedback Mm. Um, it's how that feedback's delivered isn't it and how in terms of how easy it is to apply (laughs) and feel good about it (laughs) And I think you've spoken exactly to the core of motivational interviewing. It's how we have these conversations. Mm. It's a how. It's mm. a how we do it. That it, Exactly that, as you suddenly feel okay to make a big change or do something brave for ourselves or face up to something that, oh, gosh, it does need a bit of a change and that's painful. So you're right. Interestingly, reading about this stuff or just attending, you know, a one-off workshop, it's a big expectation to place on ourselves and one we would never do for our clients to expect a person to attend one-off therapy session and then suddenly make a big change in behaviour themselves. So it's not really fair if we expect the same on ourselves to read something in a book and then suddenly be able to do it without an opportunity to practice it or get feedback Mm -hmm. or some coaching ourselves. So given that that it is a clinical competence or a skill like learning a musical instrument or, you know, learning how to play a sport, a small amount of coaching can go a really long way. And, in fact, we need the opportunity to learn ourselves. And so, yeah, that's where I access some coaching and training myself and continue to. It's a forever thing. (laughs) Right, yeah, it's a lifelong thing, absolutely. That sounds amazing. Now, I know in preparing for our chat today, I did have a bit of a squiz at the Motivational Interviewing website um, and it has some really great videos on there about and actually showing people using the technique can you talk us through some of that? What's on that website that might be useful for people just to have a have a look at if they'd like to see this um, skill in in action? Oh yeah. Now may I check too? Which website was that, um, Annika? It's really good that you mentioned that because you know there's so much out there on the internet. Okay, yeah. On motivational interviewing network of trainers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the M I N T. Yeah, and also um, I think William Miller and Stephen Rolnick probably have some on PsychWire as well. So it is really good, you're right, to check the source because there's lots out there on the internet. So it's helpful to have videos to be able to observe it. And I think that's, I found that helpful to get a feel for it and see it. And yet it is a bit like watching the Australian Open. I reckon I could, you know, you know, as I sit on the couch watching the tennis on the Australian Open, by the time it comes to the end of January, I'm coaching the players and yet I've never been out on that court. (laughs) So the doing it is what matters and getting feedback. So, yes, it's helpful to read, helpful to learn, Mm. helpful to watch. Mm. But as in life, it's actually you got to do it. The doing it and and getting that feedback on change mm. that that helps. 
we know that mm. from working with our clients, don't we? We do, definitely. So where would people go? So where would, you know, there might be someone listening to this podcast episode, Jackie, who is really interested and now really keen to maybe look at what sort of training options, where, where would people look for that information? And you went to Chicago. Is that what everyone would have to do Not to be really all. good at this <laughs> technique? <laughs> and I'm still learning, like, honestly, I think it's a, it is – I don't mean that as a trite thing. I want to encourage myself and everybody. It, you know, with a clinical competence, it takes practice and practice is okay. Clients, you know, over 25 years, I still think clients are the best teachers. Like, Mm -hmm. and humans, my fellow, by clients is a role. We're equal humans in life. And, the frontline seats of being there with someone as they make an important change in their life is a huge teacher for me ongoing. So where can people go? I think you're right. You want to check that the source is credible with anything. And so, yeah, the the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers is a good way to go if you want to find a supervisor. They're worldwide. So there's lots of choice there and options. There are workshops that are offered by various people. Um, that, and I found for me, that was a helpful way for me to engage. I actually needed to do it and experience it for, and I think a lot of adults for adult learning, it's getting the feel for it was helpful as well as reading about it. So there are um, books out there. So there's motivational interviewing in healthcare. There's a fourth edition coming out. There's a third edition. So there's books that are recommended that you can read um, and podcasts you can listen to about it. And yeah, you can get coaching and training yourself. I'm embarking on that myself. I seek my own supervision and I offer supervision too. Like all of us, it's lifelong learning. So Mm, absolutely. Before we finish up, Jackie, if you could, I don't know, give us one or two really good, important take-home messages about motivational interviewing, what might it be? There are some take-home messages. I think It'd be fun if I share maybe a story or two of how I've found it helpful. But I do think for the, you know, as a working clinician in the wild, you can enter motivational interviewing from many different avenues and portals. Some people read, some people watch, some people coach. The doing it is what matters and getting accurate feedback on, you know, listening to our clients and getting feedback on our own performance, not just from clients but from, you know, credible sources in in a helpful way, you know, a way that's empowering and compassionate and that we can actually swallow and work with. So um, some take-home things for a working clinician is you might start at the front end, which is where you read about it and learn, but you can also start at the other front end, which is working with our clients. And I often think it's an interesting thing that I started doing. I thought I was already doing it, but I really started doing it in a systematic way. Was at the end of every session, I would ask clients, you know, so what is it that you've found most helpful from our session today? And listening to that feedback. And it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's not always what I thought was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's profound. And then and another question. I sometimes ask, not always, but it's got to fit the relationship. I'll ask people, so what do you think you might do or what do you think you will do between now and our next session? And it's interesting, again, when people reflect on what they say they'll do. And just yesterday, I think, with a client when I asked 
that question and you know she's wanted she's an adult and she's wanting to return she's wanting to drive and reading and writing and being able to understand is really important to being able to learn to drive so that's what we've been working on but also she really wants to have good conversations in life and so we worked on you know really good stuff in therapy that she had said was good stuff and all of that and I asked her that question at the end you know what's been most helpful for you and and then the next one what do you think you'll do and she said she went quiet and really thought about it and she said you know I think I'm just going to talk more every you know in conversations <laughs> And it doesn't sound profound, but when you know the context, this is for someone who, when we first started working together, couldn't leave her house, was so struck with her disorder that she wasn't able to catch a bus, couldn't leave her house, couldn't buy a coffee, couldn't talk to anyone. And family relationships were really hard. People were talking for her. She couldn't say what she wanted. There were lots of, you know, disagreements and conflicts. And now... I think of that when she said that and looked at me and she said, you know, I think I'm actually going to just talk more, like to actually speak up for herself and say, speak her truth, that's profound. Mm. It's a beautiful thing that changes the world and I'm like, that's what really matters. So, mm. yeah. Oh, it, that is such a lovely story, Jackie. I hope, I, I'm aware I do chat, but uh, I hope that that's useful. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's just such a lovely um, example to finish our chat up on today. And I'm sure you've got oh, heaps of those examples now, now that you're using this on a regular, all the time with your, with your clients. But that was a gorgeous, gorgeous um, example to finish up on. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to share your knowledge with us all today, Jackie. You are clearly very, very passionate about this area and I'm just so grateful um, that you were willing to share that passion with everyone today. Oh, thanks, Annika. And I, can I give a shout out to all the people who have shaped my life, of which you are one, and the people that I get to work with? You know, aren't we lucky? Our fellow humans, I think, are sometimes the greatest teachers. And so here's to lifelong learning. Oh, that's a very, very lovely way to end our episode, that's for sure. And thank you to everyone for giving up your precious time to tune in today. We will be back again next Wednesday. Enjoy your week ahead. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.